Welcome to the Uncovered Legacy Podcast, where storytelling is not just left at the kitchen table. Many of us walk through life leaving a silent legacy, but I am here to change that by keeping those stories alive. Each tale will allow us to learn, discover, listen, and remember. I am your host, Curtis Burke. Thank you for listening. Ronald Turner II, known as DJ Artistic, is an internationally acclaimed DJ hailing from Los Angeles, California. He was introduced to music at a very early age by his father, drummer and producer, Ronald Turner. He is a graduate of Florida A&M University, which is where his passion for DJ came into fruition. DJ Artistic has become one of the industry's most sought out DJs and has DJs for Issa Rae, P. Diddy, Stevie Wonder, Snoop Dogg, Jada Pickett-Smith, Lena Waithe, Common, Floyd Mayweather, and Marlon Wayans, just to name a few. He has also DJed outside of the United States in seven different countries, including Nigeria, Jordan, Ghana, Jamaica, and France. He has gained notoriety for his DJ mixes and videos, which have gained over 5 million listens and views throughout the years. He has become the most sought after DJs when it comes to delivering a live experience as he has hosted virtual parties for established companies such as BET. Welcome to the show, DJ Artistic. Curtis, what's going on, man? How you doing? How you doing, brother? Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on Uncovered Legacy today. Of course, of course. I'm glad to finally make it. Yeah, well, (laughs) thank you for coming on. I appreciate that. We do actually go way back. I think we met, what, 2006, probably when we were both doing the HBCU Mixers, I would say. Yeah, it was probably, I know I got back in 08, so it's probably, I think, okay. 09 was probably the first one that I, that I made it to. Um, and then I know we did school days. I'm looking at, at my wall right now. Uh-huh. A flyer up here from like 2013 from a school days party we did together. So, And I'm on that one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so 2013, okay, because I moved yeah. to Los Angeles in 05. So yeah, it was a couple years after that, but I remember... We did that a couple of times. So that one was 2013, you said? Yeah, 2013 on this one. It was, yeah, it was at the uh, rooftop 3100 in the okay. like Koreatown, downtown area. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember those. Shout out to the HBCU mixes. And um, that that was fun. We did it a couple of years. That's, that's when we first met. Yeah. So I remember us kind of just grinding out, you know, going through the Los Angeles, trying to you know, make it in our endeavors in, in different parts of the industries. And you seem like you have gone pretty much a straight and narrow path and always show, you know, great excellence and had a well-known name and a sought out DJ. So I wanted to just start from the beginning and tell me how it was growing up in Los Angeles and what was your biggest influence in music? Yeah. So growing up in LA, I would say growing up, uh, being born in the eighties and being in LA the entire nineties and early two thousands was it was one of the best places to be, along one of the worst places, depending on what you're getting into. But when it came musically, I would say it was one of the best places because L.A., we always had a, a background of having, you know, funk. A lot of soul groups, R&B groups came from here, a lot of different producers, even a lot of the dancers and dance studios. So, of course, Soul Train was L.A. So it's like even before we had the rap thing going, we had a lot of musical history. So that's what brought my dad to L.A. He came to L.A. back in the... 70s back in 1975 so once he got to LA he was working with people like uh, George Duke uh, Patrice Russian and um, and Dougal Chancellor that was his circle so 
even as a kid, I was able to go to those studio sessions back in the early, mid-80s just to kind of hear what, what was happening in person. And it was to the point that I didn't even realize who I was around at the time, but I was hearing the music because, like, one of his best friends was called uh, was named uh, Ndugu, who I mentioned. Ndugu used to have all his Michael Jackson stuff around the house, and I had no idea why he had so much Michael Jackson stuff. I, th- I figured he was a fan like us, but mm-hmm. it took me till high school to realize that's him playing on Billie Jean and PYT. So it's right. like so just being around those type of uh, folks in the in the late 80s, whatever it was. And then once it got to the mid 90s, like my first time really listening to the radio and paying attention to rap was like 92, 93. And that's right when L.A. rap was really taken off to that level. That's right when the Chronic and then Doggy Style dropped. So being able to be a kid and just kind of hearing that music. Of course, I, I shouldn't have been hearing the dirty versions back then. You know? Right, right. The radio versions was all good. But I would say... Just being able to hear that as it was all new and just hearing how music changed, I feel like every year in the 90s was a different sound. Like Every single year, you had a whole different sound and new rappers who were coming out. Like one year is Domino, then it's it's Coolio, then it's Pac, then it's, you know, every year was a different different type of artist. So, so your dad had the, you around yeah. all those people. You didn't even understand the legacy that you were around as a kid. I didn't at all. I had no idea. And it was <laughs> right. where I was uh, taking piano lessons and playing drums as a kid, too. And then okay. that, that kind of... Uh, converted into me making my own beats and rapping by the time I was in fifth grade. So you, where are your parents originally from? So my dad is from Memphis, and then my mom is from a city in Florida called Quincy. So Quincy is right outside Tallahassee where FAMU is. Okay, and both of them attended FAMU? Yep, they both went to FAMU, yeah. Okay, so that's that's where they met at Florida a and They met, essentially, my dad... Um, they connected really after uh, my mom graduated because she's younger. So mm-hmm. after she graduated, my dad was still living in Tallahassee, and then they connected at that point. Okay, so they yeah. both went HBCU grads, and they moved up to Los Angeles out here together. Yeah, and then had you, so born and raised in Los. So you're the first generation Los Angeles. I am. Yeah, cool. yeah. And, 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 and the thing is, both of them already have family in LA. So a mm-hmm. lot of my first cousins, even some of my second cousins, who are like. My mom's first cousins actually did grow up in L.A., so mm-hmm. they both had a lot of folks all throughout the city. So your dad had a passion for music. Yeah. Clearly. He was always about it. My mom actually majored in music, too. Oh, she wow. She did major in music, too, but my, my dad was always in it. He was in the Marching 100 FAMU. Oh, okay. He was a band band director, and then he got to L.A. He was a, um, a drummer, always touring in studio sessions. hmm Yeah. Did your mom sing? She um she played clarinet back when she was in I know high school and college and then she always sang in the choir so he mm-hmm. was all he was the drummer at church he still is the drummer at church he's been that oh, for wow. I guess forty five <laughs> years at this point and then she was in the uh, choir my whole time growing up so music was in, it was in the DNA clearly yeah yeah it was in there like I couldn't get it out if I tried to. Yeah. So yeah. in the beginning, you probably didn't know what a DJ was. So what direction did you feel like you were going to go into music? Or was that something that you just kind of weren't even thinking about? So as a kid, uh, once I started rapping and making beats, like in fourth, fourth, fifth grade, mm-hmm. I always figured, OK, I'll be a rapper. Then by mm-hmm. the time I got to like 11th grade, it was more so because I had been making my own beats the whole time. But by the time I got to 11th grade, like my rapping was not you know good enough to be a rapper, but everybody was like, yo, your production is dope. So I, it was all about being a producer up from like 11th, 12th grade into college. So even in college, I was uh, at one point I was producing for the game and his company called Black Wall Street. Wow. So how did you end up at FAMU? 
I mean, I'm assuming because your parents went there, but yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, because they my my whole family on my mom's side went there. I would say probably 120 plus relatives went to family from her side. Then my dad and his twin both went there. So, but even with that, it was still like. I feel like my dad was still even more pro-family than my mom, surprisingly, even though her whole family went there. It was like, mm-hmm. for him, he always went back to homecoming every year, and, mm. and he always, he was the one like, yeah, are you going to either FAMU or Florida a and Like, that's your two options. <laughs> FAMU or Florida a and Yeah, and then for, for my mom, I'm my only child, of course, so I felt like my mom was, if I had chose to stay, she would have been happy with that, but she was also happy about me leaving and kind of, you know, doing my own thing, too. But it was, uh, basically, both of them was, was the reason I went out there. Okay, so that was another thing in, in the DNA, um, the South, HBCU, Florida A&M, and FAMU, which is the <laughs> same name for most everybody, uh, Rattlesnakes. Um, you guys are actually, um, I would say we weren't direct rivals, but y'all were like, I think Bethune-Cookman was your direct rival, but y'all were, was our was our arrival for us. I remember going to the games in the, in the Dome in Atlanta. The classic, yeah. The, the uh, classic. Atlanta classic, yeah. yeah. I mean... The funny thing with Bethune is that, like, my dad was there so so long ago that he never saw them as our rivals because mm-hmm. he showed me scores in the 60s where we beat them for 15 straight years by each game was 70 to 0 and 85 to 3. So uh, it, it was always funny for, for me getting the fan, you know, realizing that that was our rival now because from what he said back in the day, it was more so the best uh, HBCU programs were either Grambling or FAMU. So he saw it more so like Grambling was the only one that was really above us or even close to right. that level. So. But yeah, then, yeah, we had that TSU FAMU Atlanta mm-hmm. Classic. That, that, was, that was the only reason I was going to Atlanta back in 0203 was for that game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it put a lot of people on a map. I will say FAMU was one of my top three choices, but it was that out of state tuition without a scholarship. Yeah. I, so. I get it. I get it with that. So your dad was in the band at FAMU. How how was that for him? He so he was in the band and he actually pledged Omega too. So he mm-hmm. he did. I don't know how he had enough time or energy for both of those, but he loved the band. He still reps the band. He'll still rep his uh, Marching One Hundred shirt. He still talks about Doctor Foster all the time. So, but he definitely loved that experience. And it sounded like it was just the best place to be back in that in that era because the football team was amazing and the band was great. And he he found the band because he was actually he grew up in Memphis as I said, but he was watching an NFL game one one weekend and. They had FAMU's band on there, and he was like, all right, I don't know what schools are out here, but I'm going to FAMU. So This is it. Yeah. Sound like a good brother. Um, so when you went to uh, FAMU, what was your major? I actually majored in computer science. I wanted to major in music because I was always about music, but uh, my dad, with him being a musician, he was actually a full-time network administrator. That was always his full-time job, and he always told me to, to, just, to major in something that was stable, that was an actual career that I could basically fall back on. So he was like, you can do music on the side. And uh, mm-hmm. he was right as far as like barely any actual producers, hip hop or even legendary soul R&B. Most of them uh, don't have an actual degree in music. It's mm-hmm. a couple who did major in theory back in the day, but even the ones who we know of, if they went to college, they might've had a random major. So a major in computer science. When did you start DJing? Was it at FAMU? It was really at FAMU. I mean, in high school, it might be a house party where I would I would make a mix CD for somebody. But as far as act, actively like uh, DJing, it was at FAMU. I would say probably my last my last two years really, and it was really mainly doing house parties. That first year I was DJing, mm-hmm. but but that last year I was doing 
everything from stuff on campus, like a couple clubs. I was doing some of the smaller clubs then, but I, I wasn't really a, a big name DJ at FAMU really until I came back for homecoming because I was like my last year there, I, I made my imprint and made my mark and it was mainly doing those house parties and everybody who was especially freshman, sophomore on campus knew who I was, but it, it really came from me just doing West Coast house parties. I wasn't really trying to be a DJ. It was more so mm-hmm. we came from LA and nobody out there would really play that much LA music or even Bay Area music at the time. So I wasn't really uh, seeing myself as a full-time DJ. It was more so I had the songs on the playlist on my laptop. But the more people who come to the parties, it was like, all right, let me cater to them as well. And that's where it came from. So how did you even learn how to become a DJ? And were you nervous the first parties you DJed at? I mean, because it really came from me just doing like, initially I was doing the playlist and then uh, uh, one thing I didn't realize back then is that it was just so hard to even really keep the flow of a party if you just, you know, hitting next on the playlist. But I went from that to essentially getting a program called a Virtual DJ because I had turntables back in L.A., but it was more so because I was producing. I was using that to sample records and to scratch on. But once I got Virtual DJ, that was my first time actually learning how to blend songs together. And then from there, I got Serato with the turntables. And then I didn't even call myself a DJ until I had turntables. I just saw myself as somebody who's playing music on a laptop. But Mm -hmm. I was not really nervous at most of those initial events. It was just more so I I would get irritated. I would say that. I was (laughs) kind of irritated because one thing about FAMU is that it's like, when you rep fam you and you from there and when people rock with you, like it's the biggest support system ever. But if you're not the best at what you do, or if they don't really, you know, if they have somebody else that they like more than you at the time, like you'll feel that pressure. So it was like a lot of times doing those house parties, if I wasn't playing the exact music that they wanted to hear, especially with me being from LA and not playing as much down South stuff, my first couple parties, like they would be on my head a lot. So it was like, you're not playing yeah. this music. You're not playing enough of this. So it wasn't like a super catering. Oh, you're doing a good job, honey. No, it was like, <laughs> like, like we leaving cause, cause you whack type deal. So it was a lot of pressure early on. So it took a while for me to really get used to it. Especially in the South. I mean, cause I was in Nashville, but you in Tallahassee, which is a whole yeah. nother South. Um, a whole different thing. Yeah. A whole different thing. And I, I remember um, I started, I went to Albany State University. I don't even know if you knew that in my yeah. first two years. Okay. Okay. I didn't realize. And, yeah. And I used to go down to FAMU and it was just like a whole nother world in Tallahassee. Yeah, it really is. A whole different culture. <laughs> so when you, so you graduated with your degree you moved back to Los Angeles and then you started DJing more at parties. Did you ever even go into your, your major? Oh, for sure. I didn't actually, um, I guess to kind of fast forward, um, I didn't really start DJing full, full time for good until four years ago, but I did have a point. I had a period where I did quit my job about eight years ago and I went back Mm -hmm. after about nine months. But yeah, when I came back, I mean, my, my whole focus was, it was more so, okay, I have this IT degree. So let me work in, IT and that's my focus and DJing is just something to do fun on the weekends and I remember like my before I even uh, left somebody in the uh, in like the student activities office was like wait so you're going back to LA but you're going to DJ and work full time like you're going to be tired <laughs> and I was like I mean I guess he was like no nah, if you're working eight hours a day then you try to DJ at a club at night and get up the next day you're going to be burnt out and I'm just thinking whatever but when I got there I remember that first uh, first year being back I had those nights where I would work till 6pm basically go straight to a club 8, 9, set up equipment and one night i remember i finished packing up at 2 30 a.m and i took a nap in the car for an hour because i was just that burnt out so 
I, I essentially was working full time until 2014, from 08 to 14. And DJing was really, really on the side for my first couple of years. But after a while, DJing started to eclipse that. And I didn't really start even considering DJing full time until 2013 because I was just always conditioned to have a full time job mm -hmm. and thinking that you have to have benefits, you have to have 401k, you have to have these things. So I'm yeah. like, if I can't make a certain amount DJing, I'm not going to quit my job. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I was probably making. 10% of what I'm making now. So it was just like not even the option to me. Right. You had to step out on faith. I didn't I didn't know that. I thought you were DJing full time. That's how I mean, it felt. Yeah, because yeah, I was always every weekend. It got yeah. to that point by 2010 and 11, I would DJ every Friday and Saturday night. So it probably felt like I was DJing that much, but I was still working the whole time. Mm -hmm. You're like, I, got, I have to eat. I got, yeah, <laughs> I got to, eat. yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to struggle. So Tell me about the deciding factor when you like, I'm putting in, my two-week notice. It was basically, um, I remember 2013, it was my birthday. Uh, on my birthday, I remember it was already kind of a kind of a weird day because I was uh, in, in this battle called the Flavor Battle for McDonald's. So it was a little bit of drama with that. Somebody was accusing me of cheating because he was getting beat, whatever. But mm -hmm. then it was already kind of a weird energy for that day. And then I got called into my office and I was working a swing shift, which was, nine, which was uh, 12 p.m. to 9 p.m., I was working Sunday to Thursday, so it was already kind of a weird schedule to be a DJ because I couldn't do that much on Sundays. Even going out of town, I would have to take a vacation day just to be off on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they called me in the office and was like, uh, you know, so two people just quit. One person is sick. We need you to work um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And I'm like, mm -hmm. like, are you able to? And my thing was, my response was, if I have to, but... Mm -hmm. I, you know, looking back, of course, I wish I had been able to just say, no, I'm not doing it. But mm -hmm. they're like, you know, it's only temporary. It's only for a month. So I'm like, all right, whatever. It's December. I mean, all right, I'll do it. And then after two months, well, we can't put you back yet. We haven't hired people. After three months, we hire somebody, but they're, they're not ready to work weekends on their own yet. So after four months, five months, it's the same thing. So mm -hmm. I remember maybe like mid-May 2014, I wrote a long email and CC the VP and I was like, you know, I'm I'm leaving, you know, because the schedule is just that that bad and y'all promised me this, this and that. And they saw it the next day and they're shocked, but they're like, so are you really quitting? And I'm like, look, honestly, if you change my schedule right now, I'll stay, even though I said I'm quitting. And they're mm -hmm. like, we can't do it yet. We, we just can't do it. We, we want to eventually. I'm like, eventually it's been six months. So with that, I was out. So that was my two week notice. That was probably a blessing in disguise because they hadn't made your schedule even more difficult. You probably, you may have been still there. I mean, you're right. If I if I've been working nine to six, like a regular Monday to Friday, because I already didn't care for swing, but I just dealt with it because mm -hmm. swing, that kind of helped being off at 9 p.m. I can go to the club by 10. Mm -hmm. I can sleep in. But either way, it was just like, it was too much. So at, at that time I quit and I wasn't really ready to quit financially because I wasn't really making a whole lot DJing, but it was like, mm -hmm. I'd rather at least have that freedom and ability to make more. But that that no pushed you right on out the door. So just imagine yeah. if he had said, sure, we'll change it. You yeah. may still. You're right. It was, it was a blessing in disguise that he he held his ground. Because sometimes I feel like yeah. in life, we kind of need that for like the circle of life for something to just really like you don't have no other choice, but you're pushing against the wall. And it's almost like he made it for you. It's almost like he yeah. was telling you, no, you should be a DJ. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it felt. Yeah. So so luckily, that's what, what happened. And then I did go back to a different department at the same company, DirecTV, about nine months later. And when I got back, it was a whole different department, whole different schedule. I was able to work from home. So 
that was good for a couple of years, but then they moved my department. I couldn't work from home, and it was just kind of a dead-end type of situation. So even with that, it wasn't necessarily me quitting in 2018. It was more so they said the contract's over. You have to take a three-month hiatus, and then we'll call you back in June. And when they called me back, I was like, nah, I think I'm good. I'm a superstar now. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's no point. It was no purpose in going back. So, yeah. What was the um, your breakout DJ job you feel like? It's interesting because every couple of years, something else kind of happens that kind of ends up being either bigger than what happened before or either, mm-hmm. either just kind of like a, a re-solidification because it feels like when I first, I would say my first couple of years, the first big, big thing was really, I would say, paid dues. Paid dues was 2013. That was the first thing that was like a pretty big deal because it was a huge concert, 27,000 people, and I was like the stage mm-hmm. DJ for that. Uh, one stage had Kendrick Lamar. It was uh, Nipsey was there. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Problem, bad luck. Uh, Trinidad James, when he was the hottest thing out, all go to everything. So that was the first thing. And then the, the biggest thing after that was definitely Flavor Battle, which I won January, February 2014, the McDonald's uh, battle. And then from there, I feel like nothing really topped that, at least for a moment. But by the time it was like 2018, I think that was just the year that because I kept on getting so many different events that were big that it just kind of put me at that level. So that was when it started off doing Issa's birthday, doing mm-hmm. a couple events for uh, Lena Waithe, doing the, the Shy premiere, mm-hmm. then doing the Insecure premiere, but then being on Insecure itself. Then that, that same year, I did uh, the Snoop and Floyd uh, all-star party. So I just feel like everything that year just kind of like was a combination that kind of put me at that level. So, because one thing with DJing is that it's not like with music, like with music, you had that one big album, that's what makes you big, or that one big hit. Mm-hmm. With DJing, if you're not constantly doing stuff, people forget about it. So, right. by 2017, it's like, oh, you won the Flavor Battle three years ago. It's been three different winners since then. But by 2018, right. it's like, I keep on doing these bigger events, along with doing the Grits and Biscuits, along with doing the Duce Palooza events. It was just everything at once that kind of had a snowball effect. Oh, you did Grits and Biscuits? Yeah. Usually I do oh. that whenever it's in LA. I've done probably six of those now. Oh, wow. I mean, that yeah. that that was that was major back in the day. And then, like, yeah. to me, I felt like when I saw you do, like, the HBCU mixers thing, I felt like that was like, okay. Like, yeah. it's almost like people remember you. When you give them good customer service, they, want, they get excited about working with you again. And people remember you from that. For sure. For sure. I mean, because that's really what got... A lot of folks know that um, my whole following and crowd really did come from the HBCU circle. Um, mm-hmm. I was, um, you might remember, I was uh, part of the crew that was doing those beach parties back in 08, 09, 2010. When we started doing those beach parties, it was me and my folks from Hampton, like Tatiana, Jocelyn, Dave, and everybody else. Mm-hmm. We were doing those, and that's really where I got my following from, because getting back to LA, it was like Hollywood's a rap, the mm-hmm. hood is a rap, they got their DJs, the college professional crowd, they've been rocking with everybody in college, so now that they graduated, they have their DJs, so all I had was the HBCU side because I came from FAM and right. I realized that we were kind of underserved. We had the mixers, but we weren't really having the big, big parties just yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was a good lane for you because you knew the community, you knew what we wanted. Yeah. And living in West West Coast, I feel like we crave for that, like that feeling again of being back at yeah, our for HBCUs. Sure. For sure, too. Yeah. I feel like it might have been even harder in, in the South for you because it's more like, okay... Everybody went to HBCU, but out here it's oh, like sure. you went to HBCU, but you know, so it's just a little more. I feel like it's just the spirit of it. People oh, just sure. miss it. Um, I mean, that's that's really what what it what did it because I feel like if I went to DC, Atlanta, like 
Uh, not to say that I wouldn't have blown up as a DJ, but it right. would have been a whole different lane because out there it's like you have DJs playing stuff from every state, every city from like, and going back deeper, like whether it's brand new music or throwback. But LA, it was like going to a club, you're not really going to hear, you, you'll hear the commercial down south music, but you you wouldn't really hear those deep cuts. Mm-hmm. That's why I feel like you and Nicole, y'all both created a lane for you with yeah. the HBCUs and creating like a platform of introducing us to, or people who are from the West Coast, like to the HBCU world. For sure. I feel like, yeah, shout out to Nicole too, because mm-hmm. I feel like it was kind of the same. We had the same like time period that we were grinding because she started doing those picnics 2013, I think. So mm-hmm. it was where she always had me as the DJ. I always appreciated that. And it gave us a place to, you know, hear, hear those songs that I couldn't really play those songs in Hollywood anyway. Like if I was in right. a Hollywood club, I couldn't play go-go and be more club the same way anyway. And the step shows too. Uh, I think yeah, you did. the step shows. Yeah. Yeah. You, she always, yeah. So it was kind of like you guys were grinding out together and coming up and that was a good platform and it for still sure. is. I know, I know you still work with it too. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Shout out to stepping in the right direction. So yeah. <laughs> all day, all day. She's, she's still holding it down. And I, I get that she's kind of burnt out doing the, uh, the picnic, but we're going to have to, I mean, if somebody keep else can just kind of keep it going, because it's, it's too big to, you know, just let this right. appear. So, but I, I get it. I know it's a lot of work. It's a lot of <laughs> it work. It is. So, yeah. So as far as um you being on Insecure, like, how was that for you and working with Easter? I know you've done her birthday, I think twice, right, at least? Twice. I think two of her birthdays. And I've, I did her wedding. I've done a couple of the, the different. Oh, wow. You did the wedding. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. you talk about that, but how was that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the wedding, I mean, the thing about that is that uh, what I can say about that is that it was hilarious that like people, once it came out, everybody was like, oh, yeah, her, her whole circle must have had NDAs. And it's like, no, nope, nobody had no NDA. It's just that we just knew not to speak because it's like if she don't put it out there for the public to see, it's like we ain't going to be the ones to say it. So she never once told me, don't tell nobody I'm getting married or, you know, it's a secret. No, she just said, I'm getting married. You know, how, how can I set that up? How can we make it happen? And I didn't know when she was going to announce it. So all they told us at the wagon was just, you know, don't take pictures of, they, they didn't even say don't. They just said, feel free to post pictures of the venue and, and yourselves, which in code mm-hmm. means no pictures of the couple. Right. So everybody, so everybody who was back in LA, back in- Or the, what you're doing. In, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so everybody in the States saw the pictures and they were like, all right, what's happening? Like, we don't see any pictures of Issa, but we see pictures of everybody else. So mm-hmm. some folks are probably already wondering. And then I'm, I'm on the plane from France as soon as I land, everybody's texting me like, you did Issa Wang. And I'm like, how do y'all know this? And then I see that the picture that she posted was the same picture that I posted the day before. So I'm like, all right, they put two, two and two together. So from there, it's like, all right, I, I can tell the world that I did it. But I wasn't even going to announce anything about it until she did. Right. So the wedding was in France? Yeah, it was in uh, Nice, France. Wow. Yeah. So it was, a good, it was a good time. I mean, everybody was dressed up uh, at the best of their ability. And of course, we went till about 3 a.m. just partying. Mm-hmm. It was a good time with it. So how did you end up even meeting her just from word of mouth? I mean, the thing is, as we say, the HBCU circle is just that strong that even in mm-hmm. LA, it it still works even when it's not directly HBCU people. So right. my, I, I met my manager, and a lady. She went to Spelman. I met her about 11 years ago at an HBCU mixer that was at um, Buffalo Wild Wings. And uh, she went to Spelman with with uh, East's publicist, Vanessa. Uh, Vanessa was there for a semester. She didn't go there all four years, but she went there for a semester. So they met there. And then Vanessa had me do a party for Issa back in 2014, which was like a 90s party. And then from there, um, they got me back 2016 for the Insecure premiere. And 
with that, I was just like, let me go hard for this event. Let me mm-hmm. just uh, make my mark. And then from there, I've been doing, I would say, at least two-thirds of everything that Issa does, I'm usually the DJ for it. There you go. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I feel like this about with HBCU. Like, it does feel like I tell people, I feel like it's a stronger bond out here on the West Coast. It's a weird thing, but it's almost like a second yeah. cousin. It's almost like, oh, you went to a, a like, even when I see people's tags on their car, I'm like, fam, yeah. you, Howard. I'm yeah. like, oh, hold on. Who, who are you? What yeah. is kind of like, For sure. Because yeah. we're so much further away. So, like, when mm-hmm. I'm in Atlanta, I see fam, you tag. So, I feel like if, you, if you're in D.C., Atlanta, Houston, uh, maybe even Memphis, Chicago to an extent, but in those cities, it's like, uh, each alumni is so deep there that you really identify with people who who went to your actual university. So it's not really an HBCU thing because most of the city probably went to HBCU if you're in Atlanta because everybody mm-hmm. from every HBCU ends up going to Atlanta. But in LA, it's so far away that a lot of schools might not really have a lot of alums there. Like my boy Tahir Moore went to uh, Harris Stowe in St. Louis. Then like the homie Milan went to Lincoln and my boy James went to Central State. So these schools might not have, but five to 10 people who moved to LA. So for them, just being at an HBCU event is like everybody there is family. So I feel like that's what it is coming so far to LA where we're that far away. So we get excited to meet somebody from any HBCU, even if it's a small one that we haven't heard of until mm-hmm. we got here. Yeah. So how do you feel? I mean, you, you graduate HBCU, you've been on Insecure, you you DJ Issa Ray's wedding, you DJ for Snoop Dogg. Was there ever a point that you did not even dream that this would happen when you quit your job? Did you ever think about stop DJing? As far as when I quit my job that first time eight years ago, um, I mean, at that point, I I really didn't know where I was going to go. I feel like at that point, I probably did think it was going to, the success would have happened quicker in that that year. But Mm -hmm. I realized that even winning the battle didn't really, really mean a whole lot. It was a good thing to have, but a battle don't really mean anything when it comes to clubs, arts and brands, or to to like artists so it took a little while to really to get to that point and I never really thought that far ahead when it came to DJing it was more so let me just keep on going and seeing where it takes me but I would say that my whole trajectory has been different because I probably would have thought eight years ago okay I'll probably end up linking up with a certain artist and Mm -hmm. like whether it's a Kendrick type or whoever maybe I'll get with them and then I'll be their tour DJ because most DJs in my generation got big because they were tour DJs they were like Esco was Future's DJ and a right. lot of DJs who we know of were more so associated with artists. It wasn't as many who really got big from doing doing events and, and working with, in different spaces. So mm-hmm. uh, it was something that I didn't I didn't really look at as being a you know being a big thing at the time. So your path was a different type of path that you probably didn't even see for yourself. I would say so. Yeah, it was where I didn't really know where it was going to go or how it was going to happen because it's 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 real unpredictable when it comes to being a DJ. Because it's not like with basketball or even, I mean, rap is different too, but I would say like when you look at basketball, when you look at certain lanes, it's like whoever is the best gets the most success. Mm-hmm. And like with DJ, it's not just about being the best technically at all. It's about everything combined. It's about your image. It's about who's the most personable. It's about, you know, who knows, you know, not even who knows the most music. It's just about everything combined. And everybody who's successful has success for different reasons. Like it's some who are successful because they have a great personality on the microphone. It's some who are up there because they were the best scratcher and they're a battle DJ. It's some who are huge who, if you watch them DJ at a party, you really can't say what makes them stand out. It's just that they had those connections behind scenes. I say for me as a listener or or when I go to parties, I feel like for you and a couple of DJs who I like, it's the 
reliability in the professionalism. Like, I feel like with you, when I first think of you, like DJ Turks is going to show up. He's going to be responsible. He's going to deliver. Like, it's like this, this um, feeling of comfort that you get with certain, that you get with certain DJs. I get that. I mean, it's about being consistent. And I feel like that's what, that's what keeps you there for sure. Because I can say uh, being back in LA for 14 years now, um, it's been a lot of DJs who came and went. A lot of DJs, especially my first couple of years, who were way bigger than me, a lot of them are like nowhere near where I am. And that's not even with me saying it in an arrogant type way. It's just that, mm-hmm. like, because DJing, you could be hot for a year, two years, five years. But as you said, if you're not consistent, like a lot of DJs you, who were big, you hear them somewhere and it's like, they're not really going as hard as they used to go. Or they, they as you said, just showing up late with basic stuff. It's some DJs who messed yeah. up behind scenes. They might be dope. When they, whenever you do hear them, but if they, they make the wrong decisions behind scenes or if they fighting the promoter backstage or fighting the artists that they're touring with, like a lot of that yeah. can kind of take away from them. And people don't even realize that because like I said, I remember you from, you know, back in the age, like you said, 2013. And the impression I had is the same impression I have now. So it's kind of like you just never know who's watching you or who's going to refer you, who's talking to who. That's true. It's true because people, people talk too. Yeah. A lot of folks <laughs> talk behind the scenes. You would never know about it. You never know who's making deals for you. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, that's you know, a good way to put that's, it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, you just never know. Like, I mean, who who's helping your uh, career go f- further in life? That's real. So as far as your father, um, I know you said that he also, how, how does he feel about you being a DJ and, and your mom? It's funny now because they're they're the most proud. They post every single event I'm doing <laughs> on Facebook. And it, it came from like, I understand their hesitation because mm-hmm. for one, my dad being a musician, like I totally get that they don't they don't have the same respect for a DJ as they do for a pianist or a drummer or a composer because I mean just looking at what they do, like because especially being in those studios, being with people who are actually creating legendary music that we still play today as a DJ, it's like I get that. I guess from their angle, it was more so a DJ is the person who's playing the music versus the one who's making the music. So they didn't really see uh, the the long-term goal in it as far as me doing it full-time. So even when I mm-hmm. first quit eight years ago, it was like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Like, you know- When you quit sure, your job. When I quit my job. Yeah, when right. I quit my job, I should say. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like, are you sure about it? Make sure you're good. Make sure you have enough saved up. <laughs> Make sure you're not blowing money every every two weeks. It was like, are you doing okay? If you need <laughs> you need some help, let us know. But that's them letting me know that they don't they'll help me if I need it, but they don't really want to. But it's like they don't want me to be broke and lose the house either. So right. <laughs> it was like it took them a while to really be comfortable about it. But I think what made it what made them see it different is once their friends and their friends' kids and people in public come up to them like, "Oh, you artistic's dad, you artistic's mom," or, or they like, "Oh yeah, we, jump we on that boat." <laughs> yeah, but they, they they know they, they know them because they seen them in my pictures. It's like, okay, maybe he is actually uh, big at this. So that's what kind of let them know that okay, he is actually uh, good good at it, and he's he's solid. Because they, I, mean, I get it. Because a lot of times, even even for their era, like. Before yeah. people were big as DJs, it was they had friends who were artists, who were musicians, and everything who came and went. Some of them might have had success for a couple of years, but after they had their prime of five and ten years, some of them were struggling. So they've seen musicians as a whole struggle. So they didn't want that to be me, right? And and their college graduates, maybe first generation college graduates. So our, our parents coming from a My different for sure, yeah, mentality of you know when you you know they're breaking up, you know, several barriers for their generation. And so they're, you know, they want you to get a job and it's not that they don't want you to live your dreams, but at the same time, they want you to be responsible and, 
you know, providing for yourself, you know, God forbid something happened to them, they don't want to have to worry about you. Yeah, for real. So, I mean, I, I totally get it. And it's where they, it did take them a while to be uh, comfortable in it. But at this point, they they totally get it. And they, they support it at this point. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, I'm sure you don't charge them when you DJ for them. So I charge everybody. Everybody. <laughs> Grandma getting charged. Everybody. Nah. 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 It's always, it's always fun. Of course, whenever it's a family event, I'm always a family DJ by default. So yeah, sometimes I, I'll hire somebody else because I'm like, let me enjoy it with y'all. Right, right, right. Yeah. So how do you feel about the impact that you've made on the West Coast, especially Southern California and the next generation um, person that wants to be a DJ like yourself? I would say um, it's funny because like last year, uh, one of my boys, DJ uh, Dre Sinatra, he's DJ for Ty Dolla Sign, Ray J, all them. And he posted something one day saying that it was Father's Day. And he said something like, like half the DJs or a lot of y'all DJs in LA owe Artistic a Father's Day card because y'all got it, wow. that's your style from him. And like, it's something I never really like thought of as a whole because it's just me DJing. But I started talking to people and people who are responding to that tweet were just like, yeah, like a lot of folks kind of take things that I do and try to kind of, you know emulate my path in different ways. And to me... I guess I didn't even see it as a as a negative thing or as people really bike my style. Like I'll say I've definitely had people who have blatantly bit what I do, but overall I think it's a dope thing that people can say that they got certain techniques from me or that I've had that type of influence where DJs who who know can say, okay, that that type of transition came from artistic or, or him doing this type of blend came from like an artistic type thing. So mm-hmm. I would say it's, it's definitely been a good thing. And my whole my whole goal is to really make uh make West Coast DJs respect it because we know how it is. People from the South and the East Coast just don't respect a lot about mm. LA, period, whether it's about food, whether it's about the music itself, but especially with DJs because they come to LA and they feel like they don't hear enough of their own music and they just don't have the same respect for DJ out here as they should. So my whole thing is if I can kind of train up DJs to really making them more diverse and seeing, you know, that there's more than just being an LA DJ because it's we're so far away just looking at it geographically look how far LA is from Texas. And that's the closest part of the South to us. Mm-hmm. So compare that to, to Florida and Memphis and Atlanta and New York. It's like, so I get that. It's easy to kind of get boxed in and just when all your crowds are LA. You're born and raised in LA. You stay in LA for college. It's like, of course, the music you play is catered to LA people. That, that, that doesn't even mean that you're only playing LA music because most people who are from here play more than LA music. You might play only a third of your music is from LA, but overall you still have an LA style and sound that appeals more to LA crowds. So it's just about me seeing if I can just continuously push that boundary to where they realize that they can, you know, switch up the style and appeal to people from everywhere else. And it's something that it has to be inside of you too. Like everybody can't be a DJ. A lot of us may want to be, we think it's cool, but it's, it's an art and it's not as easy as it looks. And you have to be, like you said, impressionable to people and, I feel like a lot of times with certain DJs, they feel untouchable, like you never mm-hmm. see them behind the DJ booth. Mm-hmm. But I feel like with you, you will reach out and you and you make yourself available for people to learn from you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because whenever people ask me questions, like it sometimes can be overwhelming, but I still try to at mm-hmm. least respond to everybody who asks me questions <laughs> on Instagram, Twitter. It could be as basic as as just like the equipment that I use up to like, I have this type of situation with a, with an owner or a promoter. How do I handle this to how, how can I learn to play this type of music or what, even what songs should I play? I have a gig that's, that's people from LA are coming. What songs can I play for that? Like whatever it is, people ask me, I always try to answer that for them. Cause it's, I feel like, as you said, it's people who act untouchable end up being the ones who are in the worst position in the future. I've heard about DJs who were huge in, in the past and they fell off because 
uh, they had the wrong attitude with people. And you still have to be a personable type of human. Otherwise, people will not rock with you, no matter how dope you are. Right. With all this, um, you know, comes with great responsibility, too. You know, so success comes yeah. with responsibility. It does. And it can be annoying. You probably do have to set boundaries. And, and now I know you also yeah. have a manager as well, right? Yeah. So I've, I've been with my manager uh, and the lady since 2014 now. So basically, right when I quit, uh, right before I quit, I think. Before mm-hmm. I quit my job, and she was one of the ones who she didn't like push me hard to quit. It was more so like make sure you're ready for that jump. But she did feel that that it was that time when it happened. Well, I appreciate you for coming to Uncover Legacy and traveling the world for us, representing HBCUs, representing California, uh, Southern Southern LA, um, and being a stand up man in the community because. You are a role model to a lot of us, and we do appreciate that. And congratulations with all the success. Appreciate you for having this platform for putting us all on and, you know, giving us all exposure. So thank you for that. Keep it rolling, and I'm going to see you in person soon, of course. Exactly. Thank yeah. you, DJ Artistic, for coming to Uncover Legacy today. We appreciate you. Of course. The life of a DJ can be exhilarating, fulfilling, and over the top. It can also be long nights, early mornings, and uncertainty at times. DJ Artistic carved out a lane for himself that was not on a straight and narrow path. When one job forced him to make a difficult decision to leave, new opportunities unfolded, making dreams a reality. Music is in his DNA, and now all of us have the privilege to enjoy DJ Artistic's one-of-a-kind family legacy that has no boundaries, bringing love, peace, and happiness. Thank you for listening to Uncovered Legacy.